Uh, we're going to be looking at that. Um, again, this is a, uh, we, we thought this would be a good idea since our VBS this year is, is Babylon. You already heard that uh, introduced or, or talked about during the announcements if you were here. Uh, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of talk about um, what was going on in that time um, and during the time of the Babylonians. And there's really no better place for us to do that than to look at the book of Daniel. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that's the case here in just a few minutes. But we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So I invite you to hear these words. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. And these he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, and versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. And they were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of the time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let us pray. God, we pray that you would come to us this morning as a people who need to hear your word, as a people who need to know that you are with us, no matter where we may be, no matter how distant it may seem that you are, we can trust that you are always here. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So as we kind of begin this look over the next couple of months at the book of Daniel, we won't go through the whole thing. We'll go through about six, six chapters of it. It's probably helpful to know a little bit more about the context of what's happening exactly. Now the, the, the first few verses give it to you, but they give it to you in a very succinct, almost sterile way really. They say how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in and uh, they sieged the city of Jerusalem and then took the people um, into exile in Babylon. And, uh, but that seems uh, almost pedestrian, almost polite, really. And the reality, of course, would have looked much different. If you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about the, 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 the four lepers and they were in a city that was being, city of Samaria that was being sieged. And if you look before that, I didn't share this because it's gruesome. It talks about the struggles of being a city under siege, about cannibalism, about, about what happens to the young whenever you are a city that is under siege. It is heartbreaking. There is typically a, a raping and pillaging. It is not a good scene at all. And so if you are the people of Israel, 
Israel and you have endured something like a siege and being taken captive and being led away in exile, this is a horrible event. In fact, the 137th Psalm actually is, is from the vantage point of one of these exiles, of one of these who have been taken away from the city that they love of Jerusalem. Here's what the 137th Psalm says. It says this, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem. On the willows, there we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked us for, asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Now that's a brutal psalm. In fact, as you can understand, most times when people talk about the 137th psalm, they leave out that whole last verse that talks about taking wee ones and dashing them up against the rock. And the reason, though, it felt like I should leave it in there is because what it does is it helps us to understand the pain that they had been under and more than likely what they had seen happen to their own children amidst the siege, amidst the, 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 the taking over of the city of Jerusalem. This is a horrible event, physically, emotionally, but also it's important to see spiritually. They would have wondered, as you can imagine, where is God? And in a time when especially they felt like God was in one particular place, that place being Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they are no longer in Jerusalem, they would have serious questions as to where exactly God is and as to whether or not they could trust that God was still present. In fact, you can see even what they do, what the Babylonians did is they knew this, so they took away all the sacred things from the temple of God and they took them with them as a sign. Not only have we captured you, not only have we conquered you, we have conquered your God. And did you, did you hear in the psalm, whenever the, in the 137th psalm, where they say, hey, the, the tormentors, the Babylonians, hey, sing us your songs. Right? This wasn't because they liked the tune. It was because they were mocking the reality that no longer, no longer was their God truly God, at least in their eyes. And so the Israelites asked the question in that psalm, how can we worship you in a foreign land? Another way to ask that question is, is simply this, how can we continue to trust you? Jay Novenson points out, it is not easy when you are in a difficult place, when you are struggling with wondering where God is, it is never easy to be able to continue to worship God in the midst of that. 
When you are struggling and you are wondering where God could be, the reality is that the vast majority of us find it difficult perhaps to gather together or to pray on your own or to read the scripture. It is hard to worship when it seems like God is far away. Now exile, of course, can be many different things. It can be something very personal like I just described, but it can also be something more corporate. There have been quite a few who have pointed out, we've talked about this before, that in many ways perhaps the church in America is in a sense in a bit of exile. That they used to have a lot more influence, a a lot more power, that things used to be shaped a lot more around what the church wanted. And that many of those things have changed. One pastor friend of mine talks about the fact that it used to be the case that uh, if you didn't show up at worship on Sunday, when you went to work on Monday, that your boss would ask you where you were the day before. Can you imagine that? Our attendance would go up. Or I can remember the very first Sunday that I preached at my first church in Chicago. And, 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 and there I was, and it was a quiet moment of the worship service. I was just about to get up and preach, and I kept hearing this ding, ding, ding. And I was like, it feels vaguely familiar. What is that sound? And I, I kind of awkwardly kind of looked into the window, and across the street, what was happening? A softball game, right? It wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, I'm getting older. I realize that. But when I was a kid, there was no way they were playing softball on a Sunday at all. And especially not on a Sunday morning. It was virtually unheard of, right? Things are, I mean, for, for sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Sometimes these things have changed. That's just the reality. We do not have the power or the influence that we once did. Walter Brueggemann says that, well, it says that the parallel between the contemporary Christian experience of dislocation, uncertainty, and irrelevance is very much parallel to the experience of the Old Testament Jewish exiles in Babylon. Now, I don't bring those up to try and say, hey, you know what, man, I think that all you as bosses, or if you have a boss, should, should you know, ask the next day whether or not you've gone to worship. I know that many of us would not be very comfortable with that. I would be okay with it personally, but most of us probably wouldn't be. Right? I, and I'm not even saying it you know, to say, hey, you know what, we need, to, we need to change everything back. But I am saying it to say we need to wrestle with this reality and ask the question of how do we deal with that? There are some, of course, who just want to sit and just bemoan it and just kind of complain about the reality that things have changed. There are others, of course, who perhaps if they were like in the time of Babylon would say, how do we take up arms? Let's overpower this culture that now surrounds us. Let's let's slay them if we must in order to take over. But perhaps also in this story, in the story of Daniel that we'll look at over the next couple of months, there may also be another way for us to look at this, which is to ask the question, how is it that we can be faithful? How is it that we can reflect the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of this world? What does it look like to continue to trust and believe and be a witness in the midst of being surrounded by a foreign culture that may very well be antithetical to who God is and what God desires. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways it seems to me that we do that, and we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of months, I've noticed, is 
is to ask, how is it that we can easily be assimilated into the culture around us and not even be aware of how we have begun to bow down to a foreign God and not to the God that we see in Scripture? One of the, one of the fascinating things about this, even just this, these first seven verses, is this, is that the things that happen so often subtly in our culture happen very overtly and explicitly in the kingdom of Babylon. What do I mean? Well, let's look at how they assimilated these people. First of all, do you notice what they did? They, they selected a group of people, right? And what did they do? They extracted them out of their community, and put them into the palace. Right? One of the first things that happens, if you are not careful, one of the first ways to easily be assimilated into the foreign culture, into the kingdom of the world, is to extract yourself from the community of God. The Babylonians knew this, so they took them away from their community. Right? This happens, and, and it's very easy. The king could do that, and to know then that he had so much more control over everything if he took them away from their community. This is why we talk about the importance of community so much. I know from time to time, I've heard this, um, um, you know, well, Jerry talks too much about community. Here's the reason why. Because I don't think that you can ever detach faith and our understanding of Jesus from one another. When Jesus came here, I know, I know I've said this before. But when Jesus came here, he did not just lead on his own. He brought in 12 other people in order for them to be able to move and work together, right? That's why he created the church. We were meant to do this in community. And as soon as you begin to think, I can do this without anybody else, I want you to know this. You are in grave danger of being easily assimilated into the culture. Now, what does that look like? Well, we don't have a king who comes over here and says, now you need to just leave the church community. No, 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 we don't have that. No, 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 it's much more subtle, right? It's it's being busy, right? I mean, that's one of the things that clearly takes us away, right? It's, It's kind of a shift of priorities where it's not quite as important to kind of be with the community. If I can be so honest... One of the ways that we oftentimes see this, and this is one of the things that has broken my heart this week, is the reality that oftentimes it is in struggles within the community, like we have seen this week, that we see that people begin to fall away from the community, begin to struggle with being in the community. Right? Whenever it is, we want this to be a safe space. And I know that it can be hard when you feel like you come here and it's not a safe space. Whenever you you come here and you think, well, I thought there was forgiveness. And why isn't there just forgiveness? I realize that that can be a struggle. And so there are times when it's easy to say, well, forget it then. If that's the way the community is going to be, we'll just go off on our own. We don't even need people. Trust me, I understand how easy it is at times to think this would be much easier to just do this by myself. I will just go, I was going to say to the beach and be with God. That's a, a little hard. I mean, Indiana Beach or... It's the lake here, right? I can go someplace, right? And in one sense, it's easy, but it will not take long. I promise you that before you begin to be assimilated into a different kind of culture when you do not have one another in order to nurture and to be with one another. But what else did they do? Well, one of the things the Babylonians did in order to help assimilate these young Israelites into their culture was to change their identity, to change who they are. Do you know how they did that? 
They did it. They're very overt. They changed their names. Because you know, names are our identity. We get much of our identity from our names. I was thinking about that this particular week because our, uh, our, our five-year-old doesn't like her name. Maybe you remember going through a phase like this. Maybe you still don't like your name. And so they, 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 she doesn't like her name. Winnie, she's not really fond of her name. She, she wants to change it at times. And so Adelie, our, our seven-year-old, she said, Winnie, you can't change your name because you, you're a Winnie. Right? You look like a Winnie. You act like a Winnie. I don't know exactly what that means, but what I know is that what Adelie's saying is that your name and who you are, your identity, they are connected. And that's exactly what we see them doing here. You may know this, but all four of these Israelites' names embedded in their names is either an L, which is short for Elohim, or a Yah, which is short for Yahweh. Both of those are names, are Hebrew names for the God of Jerusalem, the God of Israel. And when they change their names, all four of their names now, rather than having that God embedded in their names, it now was Babylonian. There were Babylonian God's names that were now a part of their identity. So what they've done then is they've begun to change how they see themselves, how they understand who they are by changing their names. Now again, I realize we don't actually go through that, but I will be honest, I was thinking about it this week. If I were to change my own name from time to time with those things that I struggle with, right? I, I could be called something like Jer Job. Right? For those times when my job becomes my identity, becomes my purpose, becomes who I am, right? Or, or, or maybe, maybe Jer Perfect Children, right? For those times when, when I get too much of my identity from my children and I say they have to be perfect and if they're not, I'm going to question myself, right? Or, or what about Jer Money? That one I kind of liked actually. It's kind of cool sound, I thought. But it's your money for those times when clearly what I have or the money I have or, or the money I'm stressed about, whatever it may be, becomes part of my purpose, becomes my identity easily. Easily, what, what, what the kingdom of this world will try and do is begin to tell you that your meaning and your purpose is no longer about God, the God of Israel, the our God, but rather is about these other gods. And so we always must be mindful of the ways in which we are so easily assimilated. Of course, you also see it with the fact that what do they have to do? Read the literature of the Chaldeans. Read the literature of the Babylonians. They taught them their language. They began to change their habits so that they wanted uh, different kinds of food than the food that they had, right? This is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks are those subversive ways that the things we watch, the things we hear, the things we do, the things we say, how all of those things shape us in a particular way. And they either shape us to look more like the coming kingdom of God or they shape us to look like the kingdoms of this world. Because we've talked about it so much, I won't go into it in any great depth, but this is the reality. How is what we are watching, what we are viewing, what we are surfing, what we are scrolling through, how are all of those things shaping us? They will shape us in one direction or the other. Are we aware of how those things are shaping us? But the kingdom of this world will not just try to assimilate us in those ways. One of the things that is really critical for us to see 
is who is it that they took into, into the palace? And who is it that they did not take into the palace? Now, I'm a little nervous about saying this, but it's in the Bible, so don't be offended. They did not ask the 60 and 70-year-olds to come into the palace. I know. They asked four boys who were probably in their teens, maybe they were in their early 20s, and they asked them to come. I, I would have been left out, okay? I'm with you. They asked them to come into the palace. Why? Well, why do you think? Because as so many of have easily seen, it is oftentimes, it is with the youth, right? With the future coming of the generation, the next generation of leaders. If you can capture them, then the tide inevitably begins to turn. And I think that's important, not so that we can like all of a sudden just get scared about our young people. I think it's important because we have to ask the question. We have to make sure that we are always being remarkably intentional about how we are investing and helping to shape our young people. Far too often, I think we believe, oh, they'll just kind of get it. They'll just kind of get the gist of it at some point. We don't have to be all that explicit. They'll kind of understand. And I am here to tell you that that the advertisers, advertisers and others who are out there and who would love to shape our children, they are not just saying, oh, they'll get it. They'll want to buy this. They'll want to think that their identity is in this. They'll want to think that their worth becomes because of this. Their bosses, all of them, they are not just going to kind of think, oh, they'll understand. No, no, no. They are intentionally going after them. And we have to ask ourselves if we are making sure that we are intentionally going after our children in order to shape them into the kingdom of God. To shape them more like Jesus. This is critical. I heard a couple of stories this week. Um, uh, one was about a ZPC family that have two daughters. I'm always partial to people who only have daughters, and so they have two daughters. I loved hearing this story. One of them, I think, is two, and one of them is four, I believe, the oldest one is. And, and they were there with their mom and their grandmother, and, and they had this little piano, and, 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 and the four-year-old calls the mom and the grandma in. She says, come on in, come on in. It, you know, it's about to start, and, and, and they say, um, um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the show is about to begin. And then they said, welcome to ZPC. Which is a little nerve-wracking, as if this is a show, but we're going to go with it. And said, please stand up, and we're going to sing some songs. And so they began to sing. They sang three songs. They sang, Jesus Loves Me. All right. Um, row, row, row your boat. Okay. Uh, and Jingle Bells. And, you know, Jingle Bells in June. There's no shame in that. But they, they sang that. It was great. I mean, they, they, they love singing together. And then they said, okay, now it's time for Sunday school. You know that these, this particular family comes to the 1030 because they're, they're in here during worship. And all right, now you guys go on out. Um, and so they wanted the grandma to go to Sunday school. Uh, and then they came back. <clears throat> And they did a kind of role reversal because then the kids said, here's what we learned today in Sunday school. We learned that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus loves me and that Jesus loves you. And I thought that is what they need to learn. That, I mean, kids are scary how much they soak in, that children are always listening. They're always paying attention. Are we being intentional in what we are teaching them and what they are hearing? 
Right? Or, or even this week at the deck table, the deck dinner family table. I know that deck family dinner table. I know, what, I know what people think. Oh, it's the pastor and, you know, I'm sure that dinner's there. You know, there's a certain kind of halo and they speak in King James language. And, you know, they, they just talk about what are the different attributes of God that you discovered today and stuff like that. It may surprise you to know that's not usually what our dinner is like. Usually it's kind of begging, you know, the three-year-old, please just eat something. We don't care. Just eat something. It's cleaning up spilled water. It's, uh, pardon me for this, but it's, it's again telling them again and again why it's inappropriate to belch at the table, right? You guys got awkward. This is just the truth. I'm just trying to be honest. Now, sometimes that's directed my way, but that's still the point, right? But this week, actually, this was, this was an aberration. For some reason, I don't remember how we got about it. We started talking about what, da- what, uh, what Daddy was going to be preaching on. We talked about, so I just said Daniel. I didn't go into it. I knew they wouldn't want to hear that. And so I just said Daniel. And my nine-year-old says, well, you know that they changed all four of their names so that it didn't have the name God in there anymore. Now, she didn't get that from me. She got it because of the fact that over the last two weeks, the Sunday school, they've already begun Daniel. They're listening, they're learning Daniel this summer as well. And she got that from them. And I thought, that's what I want. I want my nine-year-old to come to a place like this where they're being taught about the importance of what your name is, of who your identity, of what you, why you have value and worth. What is it that is shaping you? So I was excited about that. But what I want you to know is that that has to continue. Right? A part of the reason why we invest in our staff for having people who can take care of the elementary, for Amy Crispin and Kristen Lear and now Elia Morakovich, the reason why we do that is we think it's important. The reason why we have spent a fair amount of our physical building money over the last two years on our elementary school and our middle school is for that reason. The reason why when Pastor Scott and I met with the property master plan, the architects this week, we said we have to do something about the high school room. The reason why we did that is because this is important, but here's what I also want you to know. It is not just up to Amy or Kristen or Elia to be able to do that, right? One of the things that you see today and that you'll see next Sunday even more so is the reality that even King Nebuchadnezzar, who could have gotten a kid to do whatever he wanted to do, even he had an assistant, even he had helpers. I love our folks like Linda Forler and, and Trina Finch who haven't had a, a four and five-year-old or a kindergartner in years, That was maybe rude. I won't say it quite like that at 10.30 when I see them. But it's been a little while since they've had kids that young. Right? But they continue to teach, right? And I hear about people, right? About like Adam Wright and, and like Kim Walgren and, 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 and Kara Grimes and others who come around our middle schoolers and maybe who help out at the high school from time to time. All of these folks who are necessary. And I want to continue to encourage you to do that. We have to be a culture who doesn't just say that our covenant children are important, who doesn't just make a vow whenever we have baptism to say, oh, yes, absolutely, we're going to look after them and then leave and never care for them at all. I want you to know, and I will continue to say this. Why do I say this? Because I'm your pastor and because I am a dad. And I know how critical it is for us to have adults, whether it is your child or whether you even have a child that age or whether you've ever had a child at all, to give and to love and to care for our children. And it makes a difference even if the kid never acts like he or she ever cares. 
It is with great frequency that I get to hear when kids get up to be 20s or 30s, even more so, when they remember particular Sunday school teachers or particular adults who poured into their lives. It matters. If it didn't matter, King Nebuchadnezzar would have gone to the AARP convention and brought folks in. I'm just being honest. Our young, our old matter as well. Please hear me. But if we are going to make sure that this community and this world continue to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ, then we have to make sure that we are always investing. In a time of exile, we must be paying attention. And so, sisters and brothers, over these next couple of months, I hope that we will pay attention. Maybe for some of us, it's a corporate struggle. Maybe for some of us, it's an individual struggle. Maybe you are wondering whether or not God is still hearing you. Is God still there? And if that is the case, I hope and pray that over these next two months that you will be able to see these followers of God and how despite their struggles, despite what the world around them might look like, despite perhaps even their own questions, they were able to continue to glorify God, to continue to follow Him. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning from many different places. Some, Lord, who, who struggle with wondering where you are and if the, is the church declining? If the church is declining in such a way, are you still here? Others, perhaps, Lord, who are wrestling just personally, going through struggles and wondering, God, where, where are you in the midst of this? Through all of that, Lord, we are so often inclined by the culture around us and even by what comes inside to begin to worship other gods, to begin to lack trust, to have our faith struggle. So I pray that you would help us. Help us on this day to remember who you are and to remember who we are in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.